Welcome to the Wandering Toward Wisdom podcast. Today we work to finish up this series on evaluative outlooks and apologetics. And we do it by setting out a contrast between different evaluative outlooks, specifically between that value that gives rise to science and the value of love. We don't denigrate science nor the value that gives rise to it, but rather claim that science is good and the value that gives rise to science is good as long as they stay within their proper bounds. And the proper bound is the fundamental value of love. We talk about whatness and whoness, potentiality and actuality, and other kinds of terrible terms like that. And we make a few suggestions about how apologetics should look at science and that apologetic method. Wondering Toward Wisdom is part of the TF Podcast Network. Please visit us at tacticalfaith.com for information about events, our other podcasts, which include some fantastic and brilliant guests, and also blogs from various people in or affiliated with Tactical Faith. You can also give money there to help support our all-volunteer ministry. Enjoy. Welcome back to Wondering Toward Wisdom. Uh, I'm Joel, and I'm with Travis today, and today is our wrap-up of the Evaluative Outlook series we've been doing. Uh, started with Rhett and Link and talking about their deconstruction, deconversion, um, and moved to talking about Evaluative Outlooks and how Evaluative, how evaluative Outlooks um, explain the way we see the world, the way we act in the world, um, the importance of love being the the lens through which we see the world. And today we're going to wrap it up by kind of painting a contrast. Travis is going to paint a contrast. And if someone wants to say, well, what, what does it look like if love isn't the lens through which we see the world? What other options are there out there for us to to to, uh, to use to see the world, and um, our goal is going to be to paint a contrast that you can see um, the problems that that are created if something other than love is at the core of our evaluative outlooks. So, um, with that being said, take it away, Travis. All right. So this is. This is sort of a controversial idea, and Joel and I have gone back and forth. Or it's, I don't know if it's a controversial idea because nobody knows about it, or some people do, maybe. Um, and I've tried to write about this a little bit on the blog, on the website, at tacticalfaith.com, um, even though I've had to put that on hold for a while because I'm swamped by other work, but uh, including this podcast. So um, what I want to talk about is th- there really are perhaps – I mean, there are a lot of different worldviews, but evaluative outlooks goes below worldviews. Like worldviews is generally held as a set of propositions that you hold about the nature of the world. We're not talking about worldviews. We're 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 down underneath that. We're further down in the foundation in evaluative outlooks. And the question is, what are the what are the fundamental evaluative what are the fundamental sets of values you can have or or value that you can have that determines the way you live in the world? And I think there is one value that everyone shares that creates a perception that is also pretty much universally shared. And what is the perception, what is the way of viewing the world, or maybe the way we look at it, measuring the world that is, I mean, I know there's some people who say that there are people who deny this kind of stuff, but generally speaking, what's the one thing we all share? Science. Science presents a kind of universal set of truths that all people can agree with. Now we can debate about 
which theory is true and all that kind of stuff. But generally speaking, planes fly and they fly whether you believe they fly or not. They fly if you're from a different culture. They, they work, right? What is the value that lies under science? Because I think this is the other primary value that drives us. And in fact, I think it's manifest not merely in science, but perhaps in every religious, in all the various religious forms. I would dare say, and this is going to sound a little arrogant, but I'm a Christian, so deal with it, um, in all other, even all other religions that are not Christian. Um, so what is the fundamental value that drives it? Control. I think control is the value, a desire for control. Now, this is where Joel and I really had a lot of, a little bit of back and forth. Because the question is, uh, control sounds like, in our in our day, it sounds like a bad term. Uh, and so it makes it sound like science is a bad idea, is a, is a bad way of viewing the world. But control is not bad. It's not, it's not always bad. It's, and, and we know this, right? Uh, if you're driving your ca- car, uh, you, you, uh, you want control, right? If you uh, have to go to the bathroom, you want control. Uh, as, as someone who has been doing far too much potty training the last few years, I agree with that. Exactly. Exactly. When you're teaching your child to eat, you want them to learn, you want them to learn control over their, you know, to get the food in their mouth. Um, it, all, all this, you know, all this control is essential for, for almost everything that we do in the world. So control is not bad. It's not bad at all. It's just bad when that's the only thing you want. And this maps perfectly on to the issue of science. Science is not a bad thing at all. In fact, science is fantastic because control is fantastic. It's only bad when it goes too far. When it claims, when that becomes, when control becomes the only value, that aligns. And I mean, this would require a lot of digging down into people's sets of values to see if it's actually the case. But I think it's arguably the case that when you think science is the only source of truth, the final arbiter of all truth, then control is your is the reigning value within you. I can make a quick case that this could that this might be the case. Uh, again, Churchland is a great example because uh, Paul and Patricia Churchland are all about science, 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 and therefore human consciousness must be so- almost illusory or something like that. Um, I'm going to get into the details, but there it's something that their view of consciousness, it, that his argument is that even the way that we talk about psychology, the psychological terms that we've used, uh, which he calls folk psychology, folk psychology is improper. We actually misunderstand our own minds. And the reason is, is because they're not, they're not, there's not the right level of confident prediction using psychological terms. Well, why, why would we need uh, perfect predictability? Well, because if you don't have perfect predictability, then you don't know what's going to happen. If you do X, you don't know whether Y is going to come out or Z is going to come out or something else. And why do you need perfect predictability? Because you you want control, right? You, you don't know how to modify things to make things perfect or to, to have them work out correctly if you're not sure what the result of doing a particular action is going to be. And so he criticizes folk psychology as, as having uh, not enough predictability to be, perfect, to be perfectly scientific. And that's a good manifestation of that. The, the other option is, and this is going to be a little bit 
tricky and uh, you might argue that I'm a fideist here and maybe there's a hint of this going on. But when we demand that God prove himself to us, who's the authority in that, in that interaction? Uh, God must bow to my demands for not just evidence, but a particular kind of evidence that, uh, I don't know, a particular kind of evidence that, that, you know, passes my muster or whatever. Uh, in which case there's a kind of like, I must control God so as to, uh, you know, for God, for me to believe in God, God has to be a controllable being must be willing to submit to my standards. Now there's a lot of debate going on about that, but okay. So what the issue I want to, the, the, the real issue I want to connect this with is, is how control relates to. So, so science is about control. Um, the other option I think is not control, but I'll, I'll just, I think I could sum it up in the term love. And that's what we that's what we are talking about. Love. And the, the reason why I think these are the two contrasting, not, not contrasting because they're not opposed to one another, um, which I'll have to get to in a second. Um, but th they're sort of contrasting uh, ways of values of perceiving the world is because love perceives people as they are, not merely as they stand in, in, the, in their present state or even in their past causes I use the word potentiality to refer to all this stuff. It refers to your body, to the way that you came to be, to the environment you've lived in and are living in, to the effects that other people have had on you, uh, from positive effects to negative effects. All of that stuff is kind of potentiality, and we tend to identify ourselves with that, um, which is a bad way to go because that's not what that's not who we are, even though that's a part of what we are. And so, love is a perception of the person as they are, which doesn't which as we talked about, is not merely what you are, where you are now, but who you're being called to be. So it's a, so love encompasses the knowledge that comes from the perception of control. That is scientific knowledge or knowledge about what one is in order to, to help and to have empathy and develop concern for who one is and to help that, to help to understand, uh, where where the fulfillment of that who is and how to help the who there, if that makes sense. I'm not talking about the World Health Organization. So um, so I don't know if that, that makes sense, but the idea here is that science is a fantastic tool. In fact, science is a tool. It's about perceiving the world in terms of control. And so it's going to talk about what things are. And if you pull what levers, what, what, comes out. So this causes this, this causes this, this is made out of this, and this is the causal properties of this. Uh, there's a virus going around and this is how we can deal with it. Um, or here's a way that doesn't work. And here's, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We, we, we think of different kinds of causes to try to develop some sort of control over a world that, that often slips into chaos. And that's a good thing for us to do. Uh, uh, that's, that's part of our manifesting God's the, the image of God in us to bring order out of chaos, right? Which involves a level of control, but that control has to be in the context of loving or the good, which however you want to put it, when God brought order out of chaos, it wasn't a, uh, and I maybe say this contra some, how some Christians see it. It wasn't a tyrannical narcissistic rule 
for the sake of his of some sort of selfish desire. It was out of love, and he brought about a world of goodness, right? He keeps saying it over and over again. He saw that it was good. He saw that it was good. And it was created through Christ, and so therefore, of course, it's good. Um, so control is not bad. What's bad is when control is all you care about. Just like our bodies aren't bad, but what's bad is when you surrender to the body. When you or you not just the body really because that's that's just one way of looking at it. when you when you surrender to the idea that where I am in my potentiality is what I am period right because Gnosticism which just rejects the body also surrenders that right I am some eternal person that happens to be stuck with this body there's elements of that in our society now too and um. And so I can't wait till death and I get freed from this body, right? That's sort of a Gnostic view. Both of those t- take the idea that what what I came from or what makes me what what makes up part of me is who I am. Um, and this manifests in a lot of different ways. I just want I want to run through some some highlights in scripture to make a point about this, even though I haven't worked this all out. So it might get a little fuzzy here. The fall. Human beings eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or the knowledge of good and bad. If you follow the Bible project interpretation, which might be actually the right way to, I probably is the right way to interpret that. Um, and then immediately uh, Adam and Eve come to recognize that they're naked. And then they cover themselves up. Well, what's that all about? I think I maybe brought this up in the previous podcast, but it's as if they're looking, they suddenly realize that they're not being seen, that they're looking at the other one not as a who, but as what they're made out of. So they suddenly recognize their bodies and in recognizing it and they recognize one another's bodies. And at that point you can, once you see someone exposed, there's a sense in which now you have control over them in some sort of way, right? You can judge them. You can do all this kind of stuff. So they immediately cover themselves. Uh, Then at the, you know, as God's kind of pronouncing, you know, look, let me tell you what the new normal's like, right? Uh, the serpent's going to crawl on his belly. There's going to be all kinds of pain. Your relationship is going to be broken. Uh, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you is not a blessing. That is a curse. Um, because if you look at the language in the Hebrew, it's not a positive thing that's going on. Um, and, uh, and then in the end he says out of the, you will go back to the earth out of which you were taken for you are dust and to dust you will return. Well, that's a weird thing for God to say. It's as if he's saying, you're merely the stuff you're made out of. Why would God say that? I think God said that, said that because this is the way, this is the way you've acted. And what's the evidence? You've recognized your, first of all, you, you didn't act toward the good that God has, the, the one who loves you and calls you. You didn't, you didn't act in, a, in accordance with what he said. Second, you covered your nakedness because you're, I think they're in that that moment judging. Second, and thirdly, they define themselves according to, to their whatness. And this sign of this is when Adam blames Eve and Eve blames the serpent. Because they're saying, it is not I who did this, even though that word sort of comes out. But the, the word of the language of causality is trying to form, even though it didn't seem like they have the words for it yet. Adam says, the woman you gave me gave me the fruit and I ate. What is he saying? She made me do it, right? If you have kids, you've heard this. Um, 
he made me do it. He made me do it. What are you saying? What are you, you're saying that you, you, I as a person didn't have control over this. Someone pulled my levers, so to speak, the levers of my potentiality causing me to act in this way. And uh, so God is saying, look, do you see, do you see how you see yourselves? And then after God does that, he makes animal skins for them. And this is an interesting part, and I've been trying to work this out. He makes animal skins from them, which suggests that God, God carried out the first sacrifice. And it's almost as if he, if he took an animal and reduced that animal to its potentiality, to its whatness. When you're reduced utterly to your whatness, that's just called, that's just another word. Oh, another way of saying death. It's a fancy way of saying death. You're turned into nothing but your what, right? So he, he reduces the actuality of an animal. And there's, we could talk about that maybe, but that's, we're going to get into weird to its potentiality, to its whatness, in order to take its skins to cut so that they can cover themselves. Which, if that isn't a pre, that's a prequel to salvation where Christ himself, I mean, and everybody knows this, this is classic, but it's like Christ himself gives in to death, to falling into potentiality, so that we can be clothed with Christ. And it's almost like we needed some sort of actuality to take upon ourselves to protect ourselves from being judged. Uh, protect ourselves from not just being judged, but even seeing ourselves, right? I mean, think about this. You get dressed up nice and you're like, man, I'm looking good. And then you get home and you look, you take off your clothes and you look in the mirror. I mean, it's, sorry, it sounds like it's getting a little bit weird. Uh, but, and you're kind of like, Ugh, I need to put my clothes back on, right? Um, I've had this experience. So, um, but there's even there's sort of vulnerability with ourselves. The clothes help us manifest something about ourselves and helps us almost control the way that we're judged about things. And that can be good and that can be bad. Um, but anyway, so there's, so the idea, uh, so that's a little bit that you, lo you look at the story of Noah and Ham walks in, uh, Ham's a bit of a pig. And so he walks in and he sees, um, he sees his father laid out drunk and naked and he looks upon his father's nakedness and then he gets cursed for it. Why, why would you get cursed for stumbling across your father naked? That's sort of weird. Well, it's, I don't think it's just simply that. I think because Ham went out and told his brothers, and there's a sense in which I think this is a reflection, obviously, of what's going on in the garden. It's as if Ham saw his father in his, in his weakness, in his badness, and judged him. And in that moment, he fell in much the same way as Adam and Eve when they looked upon one, one another's nakedness. Whereas Ham's brothers came in and they walked backwards, being sure to not look upon his potentiality so that they never reduced their father to just that. And they covered it up to protect him. Right? So that could be, I mean, now I'm not a biblical scholar, right? I'm an idiot or a philosopher. Um, same thing. But uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fiddling around with it, but it seems to sort of make sense of, of this idea. Like, why are, why is everybody freaking out about being naked? I mean, I know we're, you know, this is Alabama and we got a little, you know, we should all be wearing long skirts. Well, the women should be, the guys should be wearing long pants, but, uh, but, and so I understand why people sort of freak out about it, but it's sort of, it's sort of weird that a, a son seeing his father naked is bad. Why would he be cursed? for generations for that. Well, I, th I don't think it's simply that he saw him naked. I think it reflects this idea that he sees him in a way that he, that, that he judges him and the nakedness is, an, is 
um, is a way of presenting that idea of your potentiality just being out there and people people looking at it as just that. Okay. Now, now let me let me try and and make sure that that I'm on the same page as you uh, with these two stories. Um, that might not be a good idea <laughs> to be on I the mean, same page as me. I mean, I mean, just to maybe try and offer a, a, a summary for our audience as well in the process. Um, the so if if we if we follow Bonhoeffer, because um, when Bonhoeffer talks about the the fall, he says eating from the tree of good and evil changed Adam and Eve from being creatures of obedience to creatures of judgment that they then be then they were able to judge for themselves what is good and bad or good and evil depending on your interpretation and so it's almost like the nakedness was problematic because now that we are creatures of judgment we can't resist the urge to judge and so we need protection uh, to keep us from from that judgment that that reduction of of the other person and um similarly with with uh noah and and his son ham the problem was the judgment that that ham passed on him and and not just judgment within himself but the but spreading that judgment but proclaiming that judgment to his brothers um that that the that it's not that the 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 nakedness in and of itself is bad. It's that as creatures of judgment, it's too easy to, to uh, devolve into to judgment when there's nakedness. Um, and which is problematic, which is a reduction of the other person. Right. The body isn't bad. Nakedness isn't necessarily bad, even though I guess the wrong con. I mean, Obviously, it is the way where the way I mean to just expose yourself is obviously bad, but it's be kind of it's because the the kind of world that we live in, where we do we 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 do reduce it we reduce people as to objects. I mean that's what that's what pornography is all about, right? Uh, it's utterly objective objectifying another person by redu- by perceiving them in their nakedness without relation to intimacy or love for the one who is there. And this doesn't just happen in pornography. This happens in in personal relationships. It didn't even happen in a marriage. You're just objectifying one another. You're not perceiving it, perceiving all things in the context of that. And so, yeah, the, the body, the body is in fact good, just like science is good, just like control is good when it's in the context, when it's aimed toward the good of the one, right? And if you look at like what Bonhoeffer says about them moving from being creatures of obedience to creatures of judgment, creatures of we tend to think of creatures of of obedience as stupid stupid i don't know animals being prodded along by a stick but if my understanding of this is correct and this is really what i this is this is kind of a, a strange idea for me to to get into but i want to i think it explains a little bit what it would it would develop a little bit what what i think bonhoeffer is getting at when he talks about obedience because his idea of obedience isn't a slave obeying a master uh, uh, begrudgingly where the master's will and the slave's will are at odds with one another. It's, it's the obedience of one who is drawn to the good and the beautiful and the loving nature of the one who cares wholly for him, for him or her and is giving himself for him or her. 
right? That's a different, that's not obedience. Like, well, like obedience has a negative term to it. It's for, it's for, it's a violent, it's a, it's a, it's a oppressive thing because well, we, we, well, when, when using your language, it's a matter of controlling another person. Um, yes, exactly. Exactly. This is, this is the issue I'm trying to get at. That's a, that's a great example because the issue is we think of everything so much in terms of control because we interpret the Bible in the context of control, we end up interpret creating even theologies that are based on the idea of control. I need to be careful here. Based on the idea of control. So when I hear the word obey, it sounds like I'm saying God is a tyrant and you have to get in. You, I mean, you, you have to you have to get on your knees and bow to this tyrant so maybe you can get some sort of riches after you die. No, that's that's not how it works. That's that's a that's that's an interpretation, and this is a perfect example of an evaluative outlook affecting the way you interpret something. You read something about how there's two options. I mean, the language is even of slaves, right? You're either slaves to sin or slaves to God, or slaves to righteousness, right? But slaves to sin is being a slave to control. Being a slave to righteousness is a completely different kind of slavery, right? You have to now you have to reinterpret the word slave in the context of like someone being a slave to the beauty of the, a beautiful flower that, that is enraptured, that has taken their attention, right? Are they enslaved? Are you, when you're in love with someone, are you a slave to them? Yeah. People write poetry about that. I am in, I am, I am smitten and lost control. What is that a bad kind of slave? It's a different kind of slavery. Now, if the other person is seducing you in order to manipulate you, then yes, it's a bad kind of slavery. But if the other person truly loves you, then it's a then it's a slavery that truly frees, right? And the whole difference is how do you interpret that term? And if you look at how atheists criticize the Bible, I guarantee, just think of it. Think think of this. There, if they're if the value through which they're perceiving everything is the value of control, then interpret the scripture through that. You come up with a narcissistic God who. In fact, I had a I had a student in one of my classes, brilliant student, really really intelligent, um, pretty serious atheist, and this is how he interprets scripture. In fact, he interpreted the gospel in the same way I had interpreted gospel the entire life, my entire life, because I've been taught control, 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 control is everything. And so, you know, what is it? Well, God created a world of a bunch of people who have to worship Him. If they don't worship Him, they go to hell. Uh, he makes up a, an arbitrary rule about some sort of tree, not eating that fruit, and they they fail the test. So he's like, all right, y'all are going to go to hell because you're not giving me the right kind of obedience like a good slave should. And then he makes some sort of weird thing about G, about some guy dying on a cross, and you got to believe in him, even if you don't have the right information. And and if you, you, know, if you don't do that, you're going to end up burning in hell. Um, you have to love me at the point of a gun, or I'm going to shoot you except the, it's not a gun it's hell well that's that's crazy that's a that's not a that's not good news that's terrible news right but but th those words are those a lot of those words and concepts are sort of they're correct they they align with scripture the problem is not the words necessarily but the value through which you're perceiving it right um I mean, some of the words like at the point of a gun and so on and so forth is obviously, but there's a sense of which you, we're, we're missing the whole thing because, because the lens through which the value through which we're looking at it is still the values of this world. We're perceiving the gospel through the eyes of a world that is obsessed with control. 
or what I call it when we're doing the, this Luke Acts study when I taught New Testament, some New Testament, and uh, both in, in a university or in a college and, and in churches, empire power. The, the attempt to, and we talked about it in our podcast months ago, the, the desire to possess and control. So, what does a desire to possess and control? What is what is that a sign of? Well, here I'm going to jump out of scripture and go pre New Testament to Plato. So Plato's got this 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 bit. Now we've talked about the mean. I've talked about the Mino uh, on this podcast in the past. It's one of my favorite writings um, of Plato and favorite writings. Period. It's a fantastic little dialogue. But there's a section where where Socrates is talking to this guy Mino. Mino is sort of obsessed with. Uh, he he's trying to force Socrates to answer a question that Socrates says he can't answer. And there's a point where where Socrates does all this demonstration that should have just blown Mino's mind, and Mino should have like fallen on his knees and said, "Teach me, great master," or whatever. But he doesn't. He says, "Oh, that's that's fine, Socrates. Now tell me." But I want to go back to the original question that you kept you kept avoiding and tell me the answer to this question. And Socrates turns to him and says, "Because you." because you are unable to control yourself and therefore seek to control others. Now, what is it? What does self-control even mean? Plato even talks about this. Self-control seems to be the better part of you controlling the worst part. Well, what's the good part? My mind. What's the bad part? The body. No, that's wrong. What's the good part? Who you are being drawn to the good of who you are. What's the bad part? There's no real bad part, but at the same time, every part is bad if you submit to your parts instead of who you're intended to be. If you decide I'm going to act out of potentiality. What I'm trying to say here, by the way, is I, it's arguably the case that sin nature is not, is not the body. It's having surrendered to what makes you who you are or what it's having surrendered to, I need to be careful about my language. It ha, it's surrendering to your whatness as opposed to living in your who-ness or surrendering to your potentiality instead of living in your actuality. It, it, it sounds similar to what the Apostle Paul said in Romans when he said, uh, the, the sin I do, I do not want to do, uh, and, you know, and I do not do the good I know I should do. Um, that, that What's going on there isn't, that we have these um, this good side of us and this bad side of us kind of thing, but it's when things get out of out of whack um, when we're not when we're not living in accordance with with the proper structuring with the ordered structuring of our ourselves that we um, that we end up doing things that we know we we shouldn't do and that we I would even say that we genuinely do not want to do in in our in our heart of hearts. Um, but we still do it and we keep doing it and we, and, and, and we avoid good that we know we should do and that we, we really probably do want to do, but it's just too easy to not do it. Um, you know, that, that this, that the sense is that we, and, and, and I, I, part of my hesitation in, in control and using the control language is that it makes it sound like it's this, decision we make at the point at an inflection point every time we have to do an action we're making this decision to do it and i don't think that's what's going on i think what we're 
the control we're exercising is is long before that. It's in the way that we're shaping our perceptions. It's in the way that we're shaping our habits. It's in the way we're shaping our character such that when we act, it's not that we're making this difficult decision to control ourselves in this way. It's just a, a natural outflowing of where our character is at that time and place. Yeah, and that's why what control... We talk about controlling and objectifying. We use that kind of language, but we're using it at a we're using it at a, at a much more uh, volitional level, like a level at the level of the will, where people recognize what they're doing. When I'm talking about control, and this is maybe the issue that we have, I'm talking about it as a fundamental value through which you perceive. So it's control. The problem is when we're talking about fundamental values, they, they tend to become things that are difficult to define. Like love is not easy to define. Uh, this, what I'm talking about with control is not necessarily easy to find, but it's something like, like the way I try to define it is something like the capacity to, to push from behind, right? But that doesn't really work. I, it's, there's like a lot of complications there, but it's something like, you know, how, how materialistic evolution is described, right? It's caused from, it's not drawn toward anything. There's no per there's no purpose. It's all purposeless. Right. I I you know ask students when I bring up evolution, I'll say, you know, why is a giraffe giraffe's neck long? Like, well, so they can reach the leaves that are high. And that's false. It's not just not true. They happen to exist and have long necks because some mutation happened that happened to get them to the tall leaves, and they just happen to be that, right? If once you say it's so that they can reach the tall leaves, you're assuming an intelligent designer. And if you're gonna be a materialistic evolution, you can't do that. Right. So there is no why is the I mean, the why is purely from behind. Does that make sense? It's a blind pushing from behind. And when we're trying, the idea of control is sort of like the capacity to push things from behind. But but person and that's that's fine to do with almost everything. But not with people, not 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 purely with people. I mean, we do a little pushing from behind with people, right? You do heart heart surgeries, you you discipline your kids. There's a little bit of, but what I mean by pushing from behind is is to appeal to a part of them by causing pain, causing distress, causing desire, a part of them that will bring that that moves them in such a way that it causes disorder in their desires. So, and you got to, if you want to understand disorder and order, you need to go back to our seven deadly sins thing, which Joel was fantastic on, right? All the seven deadly sins, it's, they come from a, a fun, what is fundamentally a right desire gone awry, gone disordered, bent out of shape, twisted, and now at odds with the other desires because we are created. And this is, I think in Plato, and I think it's also in scripture, we are created to have our, to have ourselves completely and utterly fulfilled all of our desires united. How do you know that something is good? Because there's no conf or one sign is that there's no conflict in you about it. You are no longer a double-minded person or triple or, you know, N minded person. You're a single, you're, you're of a single mind with it. Um, now that may be an indication that your evaluative outlook has picked the wrong value and that you fully bought into that evaluative outlook. Yes. But, but I mean, it, it shows that, that within your evaluative outlook, when you lack double-mindedness or I mean, when you're single-minded on it, that you have reached what is good in your evaluative outlook. Purity of will is, to, oh wait, purity of heart is to will one thing, Joel. That's a quote from someone famous. Yes. No, yes. but, but I do like, I think, 
when I'm talking about this, again, I'm talking at a lower level. People can be single-minded, can be single-mindedly pursuers of fame or money, but they're not really single-minded. I don't think they are because that would suggest that they are fully gone, fully given over, which I guess may be possible, fully given over to sin. That may be possible, but I think the image of God is always there trying to pull us back so that we are never satisfied we're never wholly united in our desires until they are aimed toward, really, I would say the glory of God, but you're going to interpret that in terms of control, and then you're going to see God as a narcissist, and you're going to be confused. But that's not what the glory of God is. The glory of God includes the glory, includes our glory. The, but and you think, well, we get glory. Well, our glory is opposed to God's glory. Quit thinking of it in terms of control and power over. My glory... When my child succeeds, it is my glory, right? How would, how would we see those at odds unless I'm a terrible father, which I am. But so, so I want to I bring up one thing about this. Um, yeah, well, no, let, let me finish the Mino thought. When we lack control over ourselves, and what does it mean to, to have self-control? Plato says it's something, but he's like unclear about it while Socrates is saying it. That seems to be the better part controlling the worst parts. Um, there's a lot of interpretation issues there, but I think what, what he's actually getting at, and I think what we should believe is it's when the who that God has called us to be controls the what that makes us who we are or uses the what that makes us what we are to create wonderful things, right? So I may have a bad past. I, I was I was treated badly by so-and-so, maybe by my parents, maybe by experiences in high school or elementary school. Maybe I have I have an injury, I have a I have an illness, I have I have I've had difficulty in my life in this way or that way. That it that does affect you. I mean, we're not Gnostics, we realize and we're not Stoics, that does affect you, that does form you. Right. But it doesn't it doesn't, uh, it doesn't, it's not who you are. No single desire makes you who you are. It just is a part of who you are. And so if you look at something, so when we lack control over ourselves, our potentiality reaches out to control others. So if I, let's just, let's just be like, let's say all I can care, all I care about is sex and I just want to control. So I surrender to this desire, to this sexual desire. Well, then my sexual desire, which is a piece of my potentiality, because it's not, I'm not incorporating it into who I am as a whole, reaches out to, to try to control others. And that can turn into uh, pornography problems. It can turn into rape. It can turn into just, just uh, an interaction with people that never incorporates the intimacy that comes from, from truly loving one another simply using other people, right? It can look like I'm having a positive, positive relationship with all, with all these people that I'm sleeping with or whatever, but it doesn't, it never actually develops into love. I mean, it could be fun because people can use one another and have fun. People do it all the time, but it doesn't necessarily, and they can think they love each other because they support how, how easy it is to use one another, but you're still just using one another. Um, because you're, you're embracing a part of them or what they are now instead of pushing them or dr helping draw them toward what they are. So love draw lo control is about pushing from behind sees people as merely that, which is pushed from behind. This is why science can never demonstrate the existence of a person. Okay. 
It can, it can demonstrate the existence of human beings. It can, like, because people always say, you need to show that God, atheists say, demonstrate that God exists. Demonstrate that a person exists. You can't do it. You can demonstrate that there's neurons firing. You can demonstrate whatever, but you will never be able to prove that there's consciousness in a person, right? You can and, prove and, by, and, and, and by analogy. And by point. everyone. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's not a controversial position, right? That's, that's obvious. Like you can't take the subjective and make it, you can't take something that is fundamentally subjective and bring it into the objective, right? And your consciousness is by its nature subjective. Right. So now we can sort of read your mind by mapping your neurons maybe and seeing that certain parts are lighting up and thinking this person's angry, right? Or whatever, but that's not actually reading your mind and it's not actually in a, uh, a perception of the subjective. It's an, it's extrapolating information, making inferences, et cetera, et cetera. So, and it still all remains in the objective because that's, that's a, that's a, that's a chasm you can't get over. You can't even draw a cross in there and get over it. So when we lack control over our own potentiality, when our, when our, when who we are is not controlling our potentiality, our potentiality reaches out to control others. This is part of the reason why people look at God and interpret him as controlling things because they see him as a being of potentiality who, who brings things into being. And if he's, and if all the, if you're interpret if you're ter- interpreting scripture through the idea of God as a potentiality, he sounds like a control freak and therefore he's a narcissistic jerk. But if God is pure actuality, that kind of understanding of God doesn't make any sense. And by the way, it's very difficult to demonstrate the, the existence of God's potentiality if there ain't none. So, uh, I'm not trying to push us into fideism, but things get sort of interesting here. The idea, how do you know, how do you know a person's a person? Well, not through science. You know, they're a person by developing a relationship, right? Loving them, right? You can have relationships with people that are relationships of control. And you may say they're a person, but you're using that word in a sloppy way to really see their personhood is to is almost to enter into what Buber calls the I thou relationship. And if you read his little book, I thou, you realize that ain't looking at someone saying, yeah, there's someone there. It's mystical. The connection that you have, because we usually relate to one another as I, it, even people we're close to almost 99% of our relationship time, 99.99999 is I, it relationship from moment. There are times when we see them as persons and that requires an engagement of the imagination and becomes can quickly become overwhelming, and, not in and a bad I, way. And I would say it's almost risky because you're when you're admitting the personhood of another person, you're admitting that they are in control and you are not as far as over themselves. And so there's something about love that fun that is that that involves a kind of risk, a, a kind of uncertainty that. Some people find terrifying. I mean, you know, that that you look at their relationships and their relationships tend to, you know, they if they can't have some semblance of control, even if that control is being like, well, I know that that, you know, if I, you know, if I put them in these circumstances and then, you know, here, are, you know, this is what they're going to do. It, it, you know, it, it's but, you know, allowing for that that back and forth that 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 ability for the other person to be a person and exercise you know control over themselves um 
without that, that that the relationship it's hard for the relate to, to make a case that the art relationship is one of love. Um, I mean, with with our kids, you, you know, someone might say, "Well, you do that with your kids." I'm like, to a point. If you're doing that, you know, with, with your three or four year old, that's one thing. If you're doing that with your 16 year old, you're probably you, you probably have a child that that really doesn't like you very much. Um, and, and so we 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 know that this is the case, and but with your 16 year old, you can have a much richer relationship than you can with your three or four year old. I mean, it, it's, it's not that you don't have a meaningful relationship with your three or four year old, but it's a different thing. It's you're, you're looking more at the, per, the full of, of a developed person at, in the 16 year old in a way that you don't with a three or four year old. Right. It's, it's like a three or four year old is almost more controlled by the potentiality and so you're working on on structures to slowly bring them into their actuality. And I'm not I'm making an argument for abortion or infanticide. I'm just saying when you're when you're 16 year old, you begin to see the trajectory of the personhood much more clearly than you do a newborn or whatever, where all they're doing is you know spitting up, eating, and pooping. Um, uh, so it's like my college years. So that's a joke. It, they weren't anything like that. So. Yeah. So, so this idea is that, that, and that, that's a perfect way of putting it. Love by its very nature. I mean, almost by definition, love is risky because it's not controlling. Right. You know, it, it, it can, it can embrace control. It can, it can, it can use control to assist in the development of love. So I see, I see someone, you know, let's say I, you know, I go upstairs and my son has broken his femur right? Well, I'm going to go use some control for the sake of my son, right? Um, that's, you know, you look at his bone, you, you know, I'll, I'm going to take him to the doctor. I'm not going to do this myself, but let's say we're out in the middle of whatever. I might try to set the bone. In <laughs> that's true. I'm not a useful one though. So, um, uh, that's right. We established last podcast that I have a PhD. So, um, but we're not real doctors. So, uh, well, we both, have, I mean, anyway, so, um, but yeah, you, you do use control to, to assist, but it's all for the sake of the person. If my goal is to fix my son's leg so I can put him back into a slave camp to, I don't know, garden my vegetables, then I'm not, then that's, that's control for the sake of control, which ultimately control, by the way, if all you care about is control, that's a sign. And that's what I'm trying to get at. That's a sign that all that you have, that you yourself are a slave to up to one of your desires, because love is that which brings all of our desires into unity and fulfillment. This is why, by the way, when you eat a dinner, whether you eat or drink, Paul says, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Why? Because eating is just a simple acting on a desire of potentiality. And that's perfectly fine if it's done in the context of the fulfillment of the self. But if food, if you have a disordered desire for food, what's that called? Gluttony. Gluttony, right? Go, go and back you're and like, listen to that, pod, that episode. That was pretty good. Yes. That's pretty good one, I thought. Yeah, it was. It was actually excellent because gluttony is not just eating a bunch of food. There's a lot of other things where I think gluttony is just rampant in our society. So, um, you know, you wonder why, uh, why, like, 
why was Jesus tempted to turn a stone into bread? What's wrong with that? He hadn't eaten in 40 days. It seems like having a loaf of bread might not be a bad idea, even though it's probably the carbs. That's what he's, um, Satan would have, would have tempted him to make some gluten-free bread. Anyway, so, uh, why was he, t- well, it's partly because I think, I think there's an element where Satan was realizing, Hey, this is God in the flesh. Let me see if I can tempt him to surrender to his potentiality without reference to God. And so Jesus says, and you're like, man, does he says, man does not live on bro- bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And you're like, yeah, but also bread. <laughs> right. I mean, but the point is, it's like Jesus had to say, I, I'm not going to do this on behalf. I mean, a serpent, essentially the ancient serpent is coming and tell me to eat something. Nah, we made that mistake before. <laughs> but uh, but what's going on here? Well, the bread is almost a surrendering to the potentiality. I think there's something like that going. But look, look, give in to your physical desires without reference to the Father. And Jesus, is like, no, everything is for, everything is from the Father and for the Father. That's how Jesus speaks all the time, right? Everything he does is for the Father, and so he never gives in to to his to his physical whatness. But the physical whatness is used to bring salvation to the world because it's all directed toward who Jesus is. That's why he can't stay dead. The whatness isn't allowed to succeed. Jesus isn't merely dust, right? He he becomes more than that. And so the love of someone as they are, I am who I am, is a love of a person on their way to death because it's an embrace of their potentiality without reference to their who. Or it's an identification of their who with their what. This is all science can give us. Science isn't bad, but if you think science is the only is the only result, then you cannot believe in persons. You probably can't believe in God. I mean, you can't believe in God, and you can't believe in love. Or you're def- you can you can use the word, but you don't mean anything by it. Um, it's no different than saying you know I love I love to I don't know kick people in the shins. It's, it's the same same meaning. Um, or it has the same depth. And your the fundamental value that drives that is control. And again, that's not bad, but control must submit. It must obey love for it to be good. When it doesn't obey love, which recognizes people in their actuality or their whoness, and their whoness isn't merely taking all their what and putting it together. Their whoness is, is not only where they are now, but what they're being drawn to, the good which is hard to find. We talked about this last time. It's hard to find. You have to get to know the person. You can't just say, they need to be like me, right? That's, which is what we generally do, which is just silly and not, it's not recognizing the person at all. Um, anyway, th- well, that's that's kind of the image that you, I'm, I, th- I think we can kind of set out. Control, not in this sort of simplistic sense, but control in, this, in the sense of a, an evaluative outlook is the fundamental perception or the fundamental value that gives that gives a perception of the world that submits to science. And that's all good, but science is, is a trunk. It's a limited view of the world. Is it, is it, is it accurate? I mean, I think science does a great job. I don't know if scientists are always right. I mean, obviously scientists are very often wrong, but, um, but science is a means of trying to find our way to move around in the world and therefore involves control. The problem with science isn't science. The problem is when science is considered the only way of perceiving truth once that's the case or or as when it exceeds its boundaries i mean yes because i you know i i think sometimes we 
we can exhibit control in situations that we shouldn't, but still hold to a meaningful view of love elsewhere. Yeah, no, that's, 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 that's excellent. Yeah. There's, there are strict boundaries to where science needs to remain. And once you start using it to deny personhood, to deny love, to do all this kind of stuff, um, even to, even in, I think eh, dangerous here, but even in the way that we talk about God, we've embraced a scientific perception of the world. And that has, I think, affected the way that we talk about God. Now, I'm just going to leave that alone for now because I might get myself into trouble. Um, but I do, I do think we interpret God in terms of power, the, the control from behind type God who is, who, is a, who is a narcissist, but because he's super powerful, that's fine. Which, let's go back to the youthful problem and all that kind of stuff, but let's, which we've talked about. So, um, so that's, that's generally the idea. Like, this isn't a rejection of science. It's a, it's a domesticating of science under the household rules of love. Love is the rule. Science is the assistant. And control, therefore, is good. But at the height of it, we should be... By the way, I need to contrast... One last contrast. Uh, science is a pushing from behind, so to speak, even though it can draw you, right? It, can, it appeals to your desires that are parts of your desires. Love appeals to the whole person. It should appeal to the whole person. Therefore, when you're trying to draw someone to see your evaluative outlook, and we talked about this before, to see the evaluative outlook of Christianity, the way that you should be talking, the way you should be interacting with them is not to appeal to one element of their desire, like their desire for truth or a desire for information or desire to win. You should be appealing to, that's going to sound weird because it's going to sound like I'm talking I'm saying something else. You should be appealing to the desires in such a way that they're not in conflict with their, their other desires. So you can't appeal to the whole person because then you have to, I don't know, you have to look like a really sexy person who's also a piece of meat who, I don't know, can get you a fast car and lots of money or something. But that's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is you have to appeal to the desires that doesn't bring them into conflict with their other desires. So for example, if, I, if I'm in a battle with someone and this, I need to be careful here because I'm, I'm not even sure. I'm trying to work some of this out. If I'm in a, if I'm in a, not a battle, if I'm in a debate with someone and one, one thing that people have that is at its base proper, but in its manifestation, almost invariably improper is a desire for a certain kind of honor or glory, right? Do people deserve some sort of honor? Well, we're in the image of God to honor a human properly is to honor God, Right. And so if I'm, go, if I'm up there and I'm, I'm, a, I'm crushing them intellectually so that their desire to be right is now in conflict with their desire to have some sort of respect, I've brought them into disorder. And it's not, it shouldn't be surprising that they're going to respond, respond in a disordered way. And disorder, by the way, is just another word for vice or for sin. You're out of order. They're going to respond in a disordered way, but I'm presenting things in such a way that it appeals to one part in a way that conflicts with the other part. Which, which I'm encouraging sin is, is what I'm saying. I'm encouraging disorder. So what I need to do is I need to, right? How does First Peter 3 say it? How do all these other places? Do it with gentleness and respect. Why do they deserve gentleness and respect? You hear how they talk to me? Yes, they're speaking to you in sin and they're encouraging disorder so that even if you win the debate, you've lost yourself because you're not presenting the one who draws us up in love, you're presenting some really good arguments that 
will bring you glory, perhaps. Not the good kind. So do it with gentleness, respect, love. The whole goal is always to bring into a healing, ordered love for God and for neighbor. That's all. We, that's it. And that, that brings us order. That's why you thank God for your food, because you're feeding your potentiality, but you're doing it in the context of thankfulness. And therefore, it's made an act of worship. And worship doesn't mean you hate life, but God gets what he wants. Worship is you becoming what you are moving closer and closer to what you are because God draws us to be fully what we are. Who His glory are. is our glory. Who you are, not what you are. Yeah, I keep saying what. Fully to who you are. Yeah, I need to be careful with this language. Philosophers need to be careful. Um, that's why I like potentiality, actuality, instead of who-ness and whatness, because they're but they're all ugly words. So that's a contrast, I think, to love as a fundamental perception. You got you have control as a fun or a fundamental value that gives rise to a particular kind of perception and love by the way therefore is is active it encourages the imagination it draws together it trusts it hopes it perseveres what what does control do well control gives us a lot of capacity in the world everything from helping our sick friend to flying in planes to going to the moon to uh, making green screens to look like we went to the moon. Uh, it's a, sorry, it's a joke I like to bring up. Um, to producing lots of food where you couldn't before. All to, all to protecting one another, driving places, so on and so forth. It gives us all those good things. But if that's all we care about, it destroys personhood. It undermines real love and gives us the kind of love that Rhett and Link were talking about. The worldly love that just embraces your stasis, your potentiality and says, live in your potentiality to death. And then you get Lion King, circle of life nonsense. And so that's the danger of, of, of the perception of control. It's a great thing, but it's a double-edged sword. It's a truncated view of the world. And so you cannot, you don't let it get outside of its bounds. Love needs to be that, that which, which is the overriding element. And by the way, if you believe love is a fundamental perception, then you believe in the Trinity, whether you believe it or not. That's all I got to say. That was long. And I said a lot of words. Well, we thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, just for the for the record, when Travis said, you know, we wanted to record today, he said, I think this will be about a 20-minute podcast. And <laughs> as you look at your phone, you can see that it's clearly not been a 20-minute podcast. But I think there's been a lot of good stuff here, a lot of good stuff to, uh, to, that we could mine through uh, more. Uh, if you've got questions, send us an email, reach out to us on social media, on Twitter, um, you know, just just contact us we'd, we'd love to hear from you guys um if you have ideas of things that uh, you want us to talk about if there's something in this you want to talk want us to talk more about we, we're happy to do that um we're we've got some ideas where we're going next after this but we're not 100 sure so um tune in next week to find out be surprised um but um thank you guys for listening uh this is joel and this is travis thanks